Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer on the craft team over at IndieWire. And this week's episode honestly was a highlight of my summer so far, because I got the chance to talk to Kemp Powers, who, along with Joaquin Dos Santos and Justin K. Thompson, co-directed Across the Spider-Verse. He's also written the Pixar film Soul and One Night in Miami, and so we really honed in on all of the structural choices that make Across the Spider-Verse work, both within itself and as the middle piece of a trilogy. Very hard to do. Uh, We get into the canon a little bit. We get into the possibilities and challenges of voice acting in animation, uh, the trial and error of nailing the film's ending, and many, many more reasons why Across the Spider-Verse is as jaw-droppingly original in style, color, tone, and story as it is. I got a ton out of this conversation, and I think you will too, so please enjoy this episode with Kemp Powers. Kemp, thank you so much for taking some time to to talk to me today about this tremendous feature in its own right and also killer part one. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, w- I would love to just start at the beginning and ask you a little bit about why it's important that the film starts with Gwen and kind of the structure that her arc has over the course of telling this larger story about Miles. Yeah, well, the film is meant to be part one of two. And we, we very early on decided that um, Gwen's arc was going to pretty much bookend the film. A lot of it is because there's a lot of information that needed to be, uh, that we need to catch the audience up on as, as far as the story, this whole concept of the, the spider society, you know, what Gwen's been up to. And because they didn't really explore her character in much, as much depth in the first film, it was really important for us to to do that in in this one, and and look, just to be honest, completely selfishly, we were exploring some amazing new visual things, and we knew that since we were going to have so many different, such different visual language in this film, we thought it would be a great thing to kind of put that right in front of the audience immediately, to kind of get them to adjust to this very different visual language that they were going to be exposed to over the course of the film. Yeah, as, as much as I think the screenplay for this is going to be a fun read, I am fascinated for the if the color story ever comes out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that, though, because I was just talking to someone the other day and I realized we haven't looked at the completed screenplay in so long. I'm genuinely curious how many pages it currently is, because for people who don't know Animation is something that we, it starts with a script, but then it gets broken up into its component sequences. And things are designed, things are built, scenes are recorded on a sequence by sequence basis, and they're done, um, they're done out of order. So it's very rare to actually assemble the entire script into one conformed document, except at a few like very, very key points in the process and you kind of forget exactly how big the script is and sometimes catches you off guard how long they can be by the end. But I don't think I've actually looked at the conformed script for something like the last few months of the process. Wow. Yeah. I would love to, to just piggyback on that. Most people who have a fondness for movies sort of have a sense of what a live action director does and kind of the scope of 
their work and how they communicate that vision to everyone they're working with. How is animation different and how I'm, I'm so curious, so many different animators worked on this movie using so many different really rich, evocative visual styles. It must be mind boggling to try and keep all of that straight. It really is chaotic. And I can't give enough flowers to people like our production designer and our script supervisor. There are key people in this that kind of like, we, we can't, we can't keep everything together without them. It's, it's a chaotic process. And you, I think in the case of our film, we had something like about a thousand people on, on our crew in total. So your supervisors are your, your links to, to your team. Everything from your, your VFX supervisor, you know, in our case, Mike Lasker, to, you know, our animation supervisor, Alan Hawkins. Each of them basically heads their own massive department of people that are kind of supplying this. So I guess the best way to describe animation directing is a lot of it feels like air traffic control for a while. And you don't really start, I think you do start drilling down into your vision at each of the, the key development stages in the early part, the character development with character designers, your, your set design, your, your costume design. But it's not really until you get into edit when you have storyboarded sequences that you, you really start putting your, your stamp on, on the entire thing. And of course, um, it, it's, it's just, it's such, a, it's such a hilarious thing to think about because people think that because it's animation, it must be simple. But the, the reason the process, it seems glacial from the outside. But when you're in it, it feels like having been on enough live action sets and done enough live action stuff as well, I, I, when I describe it to people, I say, you know, when you're when you're at the point where you're on set and you're shooting your film, for example, one night in Miami had like a seven or eight week um, shoot schedule. So seven or eight weeks down in Louisiana, you know, Regina was shooting and I was there for a lot of that. I said, imagine shooting your film for four years. That's what it kind of feels like, because you are constantly in this state of high production for so long and it just gets more and more tense, like the early stages are feel almost like luxurious, <laughs> you know, because when when the whole process starts out, you're just exchanging ideas. You're having meetings with character designers to talk about the, the look of characters, both returning and new characters. Your, your set designers are are kind of like fleshing out and exploring these worlds. You're, you're looking at reference photos, you're looking at concept art. Our, our visual development department is exploring some of the new things we're going to do and how we're going to execute them. So they're doing all these visual demos. I remember the first time seeing like the visual demo of how Gwen's world was going to look with the watercolors kind of dripping down. You know, you spend times with costume designers and you it's literally like having a real life costume designer where they give you a character and you have 30 different shirt choices. I mean, I spent more time obsessing over Miles's father's Jeff's shirt at the barbecue then, then I should be willing to admit. And people were making fun of me because they're like, basically, Kemp, you're trying to make sure that Jeff is wearing a shirt that you would wear. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I want Jeff to be wearing the same shirt that I would wear because, <laughs> because I see myself so much in, in Jeff. So th this is really the kind of like exploratory fun time where you first begin to put your imprint 
on the story. And it comes through putting your imprint in everything from the characters to the locations, you know? Something as simple as like a the bodega. And it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, we've seen a million bodegas and it's like, well, let's make it a Jamaican bodega. You know, I, I, I grew up in, in Brooklyn and I always would like stop and get a Jamaican beef patty. We start exploring that. What's the bodega gonna look like? You get dozens and dozens of reference photos of like Jamaican bodegas. And sometimes people might take a trip to, to, to New York. I mean, I'm from New York and I go back and forth and, and people come back with, with reference photos. You know, that's the really fun part. And then, you know, you get to the point where you start storyboarding it with your story team. I mean, story is really the first execution of the film. And it really is, I mean, animation is also an iterative process. When you're seeing an animated film, you're seeing the 50th or 60th version of the film. And in order to get to that good version, good Lord, do you have to go through so many bad versions. And you can't be afraid of or cringe at doing the, the bad version. And, and it's going to be bad. I mean, at the very, we don't even have actors yet. So we're, we're doing scratch acting. I mean, we might hire a couple of professional actors, but honestly, a lot of the scratch is being done by us. I mean, I voiced Jeff for a while. Um, one of my co-directors, Joaquin Dos Santos, he was the one who, who voiced Miguel O'Hara. Um, <laughs> you know, Miles was voiced by one of our assistants for a lot of the process. Um, you know, Justin K. Thompson voiced the Vulture and like a, a half a dozen other characters. In fact, one of our associate editors, Andy Leviton, he voiced so many side characters. And we got to a certain point where his scratch was so good, he, we just stayed in the movie. So Andy, I think, voices three or four characters in the final film, like Typeface and the Armadillo. That's actually Andy Leviton, one of our associate editors. That's amazing. I, I want to dig into the iterative process of sort of crafting this story and also not just structurally, but visually, like Jeff's shirt at the party perfectly matches the sunset, whereas when Miles has left and he is lost, he's wearing a gray washed out polo. And I appreciate that. But speaking of voice acting, and guys, everyone, you should have already seen this movie. Spoilers, if not. I'm curious about the choice. You know, we have Marshal Ali back to be Uncle Aaron. What, what I'm curious about having two different actors voice uh, the different versions of Miles. Yeah, that was um, that was something that really excited me because uh, I mean, you said spoiler alert, but but Miles G. Morales, we we internally for years called him Wiles. We didn't decide what we were going to call him, so we always said it was Miles and Wiles. Um, and but we we settled eventually on Miles G. So so Miles G. Morales, who's voiced by um, Jarrell Jerome, it was really important that that character's voice be incredibly distinct. And it's not uncommon. I mean, look at the first film. You have Chris Pine voice one version of Spider-Man and you have Jake Johnson voice another version of Spider-Man. And that was really appealing from an actor performance perspective because, you know, actors are often recording alone. And as a matter of fact, they're almost always recording alone. And it's, it's a lot better for us to conceive of the character considering what Miles G has gone through before this. He's going to have a totally different, you know, perspective. He should have a different intonation, you know, and, and, and I'm being perfectly honest. I thought it would also be kind of exciting to get um, an Afro-Latino actor in the role of this other Miles Morales. And just being a huge fan of Jarrell Jerome's. It was like, yeah, I think this is really cool, this idea of getting, and, and you'll have to, it's funny because 
there are scenes that we recorded that are are for beyond the Spider-Verse, but it, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, Shamik's natural language is in, is in Spanish. And, it, and it, it just seemed kind of fun to have this other Miles who his Spanish was better. I mean, as you, if you saw the film. The way he hits Morales is that you can feel the difference. Yes. And, and initially, um, you know, like the, the idea of it, it can be like uh, something that we've teased in the counselor's office when Miles fails Spanish that kind of comes back a little bit later on, if you know what I mean. So those were things that we were thinking about. And that also speaks to the voice casting process because Look, people like to do things different ways, okay? Um, like when I was on Soul with Pete Doctor, when we were casting actors, Pete liked to do the, um, the, the Pepsi challenge way where he just we just hear all the voices in. They don't tell us who they are. It's just voice A, voice B, voice C, voice D, whatever. And I'm recognizing everyone's voices. So I was just... <laughs> I was just like, I was like, yeah, Pete, that's Jamie Foxx. You know, like that's it's it's just one of those things <laughs> where I can't even pretend that I don't know what these people sound like. And I also think that when it comes, at least for me personally, this has been what I've enjoyed and what I've leaned towards in terms of our casting choices. And you see it in not just Jarrell, you see it in, for example, Daniel Kaluuya. We are interested in people's natural speaking voices. At least I am strongly. And, and I often have a very, you know, like I, I really speak up a lot during the casting process. Like when we got Jamie Foxx to come in for his first, first recording session of Soul, for example, you know, Jamie's played so many different characters. So he's like, I have some ideas. And he, and he kind of like walked through all these different voices. And it was like, oh, yeah, like it, it was it took us a minute to figure out how to say it. But it's like, we just want your natural Jamie Foxx voice. Like, that's what we're casting you for. And historically, when you think of animation, you think of VO actors doing all different kinds of funny voices. But in, in my experience, I, and, and again, part of it is I come from theater and, you know, live action, and I'm drawn to the actors, dramatic and comedic actors, natural voices um, in the process. And, and I just, again, it really excited me, Jarrell Jerome, to have him... After we've we've kind of joked about Miles's grasp of, of Spanish, among other things, to have him just have the natural inflections where it's it's obvious this is a person who knows how to speak that language. It's a very subtle thing, but I mean, all I am all I am is a collection of these tiny little subtle things that I obsess over. I, amen. Um, <laughs> so, so say we all. That's. Uh, thank you. That, that's such a brilliant answer. Um, and to sort of continue talking about details. I would love for you to talk a little bit about not just Gwen's world, but it, it feels like having all of the worlds that we explore in this film have a unique feel and texture and unique animation tools built into them is so exciting. And would love to hear you talk about Spider-Gwen's world, Mumbai Hatton, um, and Hobby's world and, and kind of how, how you thought about sort of creating these rich environments. Of course. I mean, each world, we really wanted it to be a visual representation of the, the spider character that, that inhabited it. I mean, in the first film, you have all these different striking character styles that come into Miles' world, but that world is a representation of Miles. You know, it's a, it's a, represent, it's a representation of Miles Morales. And knowing that we were going to go to these different characters' worlds, 
the easy way would have been to just have them all kind of look like Miles Worlds with just like tiny different flourishes at the backgrounds and the sets. But it was a, we, we took it on as like a really exciting opportunity um, to get into them some of the some of the like exciting art that had inspired us. Um, and you, you mentioned like, for example, Mumbatan. Keeping in mind, all these decisions are predicated on story and the characters that we decide we're going to put into the film. So it's not something where it's like, okay, it would be really, really cool to have, you know, an, an Indian world, so let's write towards that. It's like, we decided on the story, it's all predicated on story. I just want to get that out of the way. But but in the case of Mumbatan, once we knew that the story was going to take Miles to this world of Spider-Man India, um, Pavitra, it was something where, okay, let's look at visual inspiration, and India has these incredible comics. They're called Indrajal comic books. And they were basically the the Marvel comics of, of India. And we, we gathered dozens and dozens of these comic books. And that became the, the foundation for, for our designers and our artists. Because, you know, it all starts out with art, with paintings, conceptual paintings um, from, from scene designers and character designers. And it, that was kind of the foundation of the world that we were, were trying to build, where the colors kind of go outside of the lines. Um, and, there, and there's little details like that. And everything has certain hues. And I'm a little bit naive about some of the, the technical tools and a lot of that. I mean, that's why the people at Sony Pictures Imageworks are geniuses, because we kind of present this artwork to them. And then they come back to us and present demos of how this would work, how this would function. And then after we get to a place where we're pretty happy with it, we then have to figure out, once we've designed the character that actually exists in these worlds, because keep in mind, in many cases, these things are being designed simultaneously, but very much separately. The world is being designed separate from the character. So once we've gotten the look of Pavithra down, and, and, and that was like a whole odyssey unto itself, we went through so many designs. Um, we, we brought in a consultant, um, several Indian consultants, to kind of fuss over elements of his costume and whether a person would wear this or wear that, um, with the bangles symbolized, you know, the Nehru collar, everything. <laughs> we just obsessed over everything. And we finally got the character to a point where we loved it. And then we kind of set him in that world. And guess what? It clashed. So you then have to kind of go back and come to a happy medium where you have a character design that you really love that can also exist in that world. And then there's the other challenge of what happens when the other characters also show up in that world? How much is their appearance going to change or not change when they are in each of these individual worlds? And again, it's a challenge that, it's, it's a problem to be solved. And it's a problem that thankfully, we have almost the entire run of the production to solve it. Because the entire time we are, we are, we are storyboarding, we're moving into layout, we're moving into animation while these problems are still being solved. And it's not really until the scenes are lit, which is the final part of the process, that the finished, completed concept is like in the film. Um, and, and like a great example of that is the character of Spider-Punk, Hobie Brown. We had his character designs very early on, but it was like a three-year process to execute that guy. He was the most difficult character to execute his animation because his, his frame rate is different in different parts of his body. I mean, from his, his, his um, vest and his guitar and his limbs are in different frame rates. 
It's just, <laughs> you, you don't want it to be too jarring. So it was, it was really funny. I actually remember I was sitting in edit and it was a scene, I believe in Miguel's office where, you know, it was, it was animated, but it wasn't lit yet. And as they finish lighting scenes, they will feed them into our editor and our editor will just drop them in to the scene during our edit review. So every day you'll go through the edit review and the next day you'll work the same scene and it's like, oh, look at, look at that, that scene, that shot is lit now. And I remember the first time I saw the first lit shot of Hobie dropped into an edit review and I just like blurted out, I was like, holy shit, that looks great. Like it's a, there's, a, there's an almost like childlike moment that you have where you're just like, oh man, that looks way better than I expected because you're not just getting your first look at the design, but you're also getting a look at the design in that particular environment um, and the effect, the impact of the light on, on that character. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that people don't try to do this kind of shit too much. Like <laughs> why you stick in one world. And, and, and try to have some visual consistency. But again, we're, we were just, it, it, we're dealing with something where we inspired by the world of comic books. Um, and, and it was really fun to kind of like do some of the things that were done in the world of comic books, like adding editorial notes uh, to pages, changing the character designs. Uh, it was so funny when we when we brought when Chris Anka we had Chris Anka one of our our, our artists um, basically redesign uh, Miguel O'Hara twenty ninety nine um, and he looks very different in this film than he did in the first film when he shows up in a post credit sequence and a person might ask well why why does he look so different it's like have you ever read a comic book and you've been following a comic and a new and a new artist comes on and totally redesigns the character. There's no explanation given. So we're, we're the new artists. I'm one of the new artists and, and we can do that. That's comics. We, we're doing a new, <laughs> we can just have it look different. And to be perfectly honest, Miles' world looks pretty dramatically different in this film than the first film. Uh, so so, so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty funny, uh, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that it might seem like we're breaking conventions and I guess we are, but we're also kind of adhering to a different set of conventions, which are the conventions of comic books. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that Miles, it, the first film now looks a lot more like Miles's sketchbook in this film. Um, and there's there's something that's like a, a little bit different about the color, a little bit different about the texture. And to your point, like it's one, that seems exhausting. Um, but two, I kind of don't think you can execute at that high a level for a conceit like this one where, you know, more films should remember that color and texture and the timing of characters are all tools that they can play with to tell an emotional story. And, and that's that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about next is like within all of this chaos, one thing I love about this movie is it manages the shift from being explicitly about like a teenager having teenage problems and bopping around Brooklyn to the fate of the multiverse depends on Miles Morales um, and whether he will accept Spider-Man canon. And I would love for you to sort of talk about that widening of the scope, both for this film and, and within this film, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it does. And, it's, and that was the, the whole idea of, and it's funny because we didn't call it canon for years. We had all these different names for it. We were calling it convergence events. Uh, we, we had all these different names and we were just like, these names all sound dumb. And at a certain point, um, I think it was Chris Miller who was, who, you know, he was, he was like, why don't we just call it what it is a metaphor for, which is canon. <laughs> and, it, and, and that was just like, you know what, that makes complete sense. And it just turned into just calling it what it was, which is, which is just the, the idea of comic book canon itself and being, becoming a slave to these rules that the people who created them did, did not think that you had to so draw within the lines just like that. And, and, and that, and we see that happening. It's, it's one of the weird things about comic books becoming such fodder for film and television um, is that a fan base that used to be a niche fan base suddenly became the vocal experts <laughs> on what is some of the biggest entertainment in the world. And there is this feeling of kind of like ownership of it, where it, it's, it, there, yeah, there's a feeling of like ownership where, look, I've been reading comic books since there. And so I'm, trust me, like, you can't do this, you, you, you can't do that. But, but so sorry to, you know, break the news, but comics and, and film are, are two different mediums. And, and, and I think that, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about the idea of, of canon, it's been something that I've dealt with in my professional career a lot when I've worked as a writer um, behind the scenes on certain projects and I've pitched ideas and those ideas are shut down in the room because of some existing canon, some existing rule specific to the franchise or the IP. And, and it always graded on me because in many cases, I would be one or two degrees removed from the person who created it. And the people would tell me like, oh yeah, when so-and-so made that up, he was high as a kite. Like in, in many cases, you're dealing with stuff that is sacrosanct, but the person who created it kind of pulled it out of their ass. <laughs> Especially in the world of science fiction, fantasy, and superheroes. That's why comics love to retcon things because they weren't thinking it through very much. So this, this idea of everything being sacrosanct, I think that's why I was perfect for telling this story and why I was excited to come on board with it because that's kind of a, heav a heady and a meta idea that I was just chomping at the bit to like dig into. If it would have been about, okay, let's just do what we did in the first Spider-Verse, but bigger, that wouldn't have been very interesting to me. I loved how different this was. Of course, that makes the, the it, it makes the story exist on different levels philosophically. You know, it gives multiple meaning, multiple layers um, to to that part of the story. And and just as a storyteller, that's something that 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 really excited me. It was I know I'm rambling like a, a maniac, but I'm hoping that makes sense. <laughs> that that all makes that all makes perfect sense, and I love that it sort of works on that. Um, metatextual level of all of our awareness of what life is like uh, in the year of our Lord 2023 after lots and lots of comics have been turned into movies but also just you know to to get back to just how personal Miles's story is even within all of the craziness and the T-Rexes 
what are the essential components of your identity? Is it the things that cause you pain or is it the love? Exactly. So all of all of that sort of his relationship to, quote unquote, the canon, I can't wait to see how it evolves in, in the next movie is what I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it's unfair because I actually know how this story ends, and and it's 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 exciting. It's it's an exciting. <laughs> Excellent, less exciting. Uh, but I I'm I am curious about. I've been interested to hear how different filmmakers have fa- found the the COVID pause and whether it was sort of a productive time where, you know, kind of a gift where certain if it hadn't happened they wouldn't have figured certain things out or whether it was just a delay and so i'm curious for this film and especially for an animated film how how the covid pause hit y'all it was it was wild because i started on this film days after i wrapped on soul and famously we had to finish soul during covid so there were all these new tools that had to go in place at the very end of soul where we suddenly found ourselves after being on the pixar campus for years we suddenly found ourselves in our homes working on our homes to, to, to finish this film. Um, and then when Spider-Verse started, we were in co- we were still in COVID lockdown. So I started on this film before Soul was even released in, in theaters. So I didn't actually meet a lot of my collaborators in person till, till basically we returned to the studio, till we, till we returned to Sony Pictures Animation. I, it was kind of funny how long it was like, oh wow, that's right, we have to get offices. And initially, just because of how successful we were, I think we were, in finishing during COVID um, and how productive we were able to be, I, I thought that the working from home and the COVID nature of it was fine. But once we got back into the office, I realized that there was something lost. There's something lost in the collaborative process, not being in rooms together. Um, and a lot of it is because making films like this is in-person debating. It really is. There's, there's no replacement for no matter having 20 screens and sometimes there'd be like dozens of screens of of art story artists or animators there and you're looking at little boxes when people are talking um but there's no replacement for everyone sitting in the room together and ideas manifest that simply don't when you are at home all day and you just log on for a meeting for two hours and then log back off and go outside and walk your dog um, when you're when you're on the campus, when you're when you're when you're in your area with your collaborators, you you just ideas start coming faster and you know you know much more faster, much more frequently. Um, and and again, like there's an an edit suite is a is a special place. <laughs> it's a special stinky, sweaty, angry place that um, you know sometimes. If if Phil is in the suite with us, you know, and 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 Mike Andrews has his has his avid going, Phil might have we. I remember when Phil had like another TV dragged in to to watch like Clippers games when we were going late nights. Like an edit suite is like a unique environment that ideas get get pulled out of the air, and sometimes they're big ideas. Sometimes they're really little ones. Like I, I remember like once we were all sitting in the edit suite and, and I was just, we were looking at a scene. It was the, I think it was the beginning of the, what we call the 2099 chase. It's right after Miles basically, you know, runs out of the, out of, um, you know, Miguel's office and starts getting chased through all through the headquarters and out into the city. And Peter, Peter B um, is like, oh boy, here we go. We have to go on a chase. And the scene had been there forever. And I was just like, 
I think Mayday should have a knit cap on. <laughs> you know, like, don't you think Mayday should have a little knit cap, like a little knit Spider-Man cap? And, you know, if Justin Thompson's sitting like right there, it's like, well, how difficult would that be to make? Like, we're all having a conversation in real time. We're still editing, but we're having a conversation in real time about, like, this little thing that, again, is going to be like super to report to me. It's like, yeah, and, you know, he put the cap on, and when they get ready to do the chase, Peter pulls the cap down so that her little knit Spider-Man eyes are over her, her eyes, and you just barely see her skin in, in the Bjorn. And and that was like a, a very last-minute thing where it's like, well, you know, your production manager's there. It's like, well, how much is that going to cost? Because we've already animated this scene. Like, there is a whole spitballing session that happens in real time to decide whether or not we can and are going to do something like add a crochet knit cap on the baby's head. And I don't think things like that would have happened if we were all on at our screens during COVID. I mean, I appreciate it did because that is a very expressive and adorable knit cap that baby has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, just at the, the very end with the don't tell mom. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, once we got that in there, it came into play later when he says, don't tell mom. And she, she, it's her costume. She pulls that little cap down over her eyes. So it's like, oh, it's, I guess it's a good thing we did pay to put the knit cap in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It feels like working in this way, as opposed to traditional live action or, or even theater really encourages you to, um, you know, the old, the old cliche of use every part of the Buffalo and that you're, you're constantly repurposing and reusing and adding things that then then can get added back in earlier or later. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's not just speaking to the actual, it's everything in person. Like we did a lot of recordings of actors um, remotely. And sometimes you have to do that. And, and that's a big change up. Like before COVID, doing remote recordings was a lot less common. At, at Pixar, if there was an actor in London you either flew them to Pixar or you flew to London to be in the booth with them. So everyone was being recorded in person. And then during COVID, everyone was being recorded remotely. So that even when we go back from COVID, a lot of recording sessions are being done remotely. If someone is on the East Coast, then, you know, we do it by video. And it's, it's, it can work. It works fine. But there's no substitute for for being in person. And I'll give you, and I, and I can explain how that actually plays out. Like the process of, I don't, I, I don't want to get too granular, but. Oh, this is the nerdiest thing that IndieWire does. You oh, can okay. get incredibly okay. granular. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, so I'm going to get granular about voice recording for animated films. Going back to the beginning. Most animated, most, most of the time, the voiceover artist is alone in the booth. When they first come on to the show, they're, they don't even know the story of the film. Usually they get a, a character sketch. Here's your character. We tell them about their character. I might even write up a bio of their character. And then they get some sides. It's a few scenes. The scenes are out of context. It seems fucking insane. <laughs> Especially to someone who has never done voiceover work before. Usually you never get together with any of your scene partners. Um, in, in many cases, you don't even know who else is in the movie. In some cases, until the movie comes out. So you're having these emotional, dramatic scenes by yourself with no scene partner. I like to stand in as the scene partner. So in a lot of these cases, and, and some people, when they give you the line, the, the, the other person's line read, they just do it robotically. I'm a terrible actor. 
but I try to actually do give a performance opposite the other actor. And there's a thing that you do in, in animation where some people like to give the, the recordings to the editor and have the editor pick takes. Or when you're recording, you sit there and you make a note like, that's a good take, that's a good take, that's a good take. Um, but sometimes you've done 40, 50 takes and you're not sure, so you have to shop takes. So I did a lot of shopping takes. Shopping takes, it's pure tedium. You're listening to, to hundreds of takes over. You, you don't do it all. It would take you weeks to do it. So in my day, I would usually block out like two hours, usually in the morning, to shop takes before I went into edit or did something else. Because if I had to do it in the evening or the afternoon, I didn't have the patience for it. So you shop takes for a couple of hours. And when you're shopping takes, because it's animated, it's not live action, you can kludge together performances. I might listen to, okay, I'll say, someone says the line, you know, I can't believe you did that. We'll shop those takes. I'll go, okay, let's take, you can't believe from B, um, you did from F and that from ZB. And we'll kludge that together and, um, and get a version of it. When you're in person more, and I experienced this a lot on this film, it's a lot, you have a lot better chance of just getting full takes that are just straight performances, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that plays out a lot in what you see in the film. The, 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 there are several really dramatic moments, like when Luna Lauren Velez, who plays Rio, does, um, you know, right before Miles goes off, and, and we actually cut it into our first teaser, during COVID, that would have been like 20 different takes to get that speech. Instead, it was a single take that we used, unbroken. And while you technically can't hear the breaks when we clue you together, I do think you can tell because you go on the emotional ride with the actor doing the performance. Understanding that the performance, the vocal performance is only half of it. The other half is the performance of the animators who are doing the physical performance. But you want to give them the best ingredients to cook with, for lack of a better word. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like and like a consistency of, of energy um, that I think, you know, is, is not maybe not audible, uh, but is trackable, uh, whether something is sort of spliced together or, or a single continuous take. Absolutely. And in, in animated films, especially one with so much action, the thing that people are the least excited about are the people in rooms talking. On this film, the people in rooms talking were the bedrocks of the entire film. They were some of the best moments that were connecting with the audience. And some of the moments that we, we built those performances in the, with the time and care that someone would build an action sequence. Every gesture, every blink, every shoulder shrug, we built those like they were Shakespearean plays. Incredible. I would love to, to talk to you a little bit about some of those people in room talkings because I was so impressed in this movie with what equal weight sort of the disconnect between teenagers and parents are given um, and di parents at different stages of their of their lives. Uh, Peter B. Parker is just starting out. Jeff and Rio have a teenage son. Captain Stacy's in kind of a different place um, with a daughter who's run away. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the importance of that to the structure of this movie and to, I think, the position it gives us on Miles um, and on what he's going through. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, we've always said from the beginning that this film was meant to be a coming-of-age story, but it's a coming-of-age story for both kids and parents, because anyone who's ever been the parent to a teenager knows that there is this point at which this kid who you're their best friend in the world suddenly pulls away from you. Um, and and that was something that it was it was very early on decided that we were going to give Miles a growth spurt. We didn't want him to be, you know, such a, a tiny little kid. And, and it helps because when when I started on this film, my son, my I have two um, kids. One is 24 and one is now 19. But when I started on this film, my son was just a little bit older than Miles was in the film. So I had just visually witnessed my kid go from this little dude to taller than me over an incredible and get very withdrawn, quiet, and kind of retreat into his own world. And it hurt my feelings, if I must say. <laughs> and and so we said, you know, uh, it, it's, it, you know, I always, I always saw Pixar as a house of master storytelling. One of the most masterful things they do is that when they tell a story, they really do treat animation as just filmmaking, as a medium. And, and, it, and it's something that's meant to be enjoyed by everybody, um, parents, adults, I mean, adults, um, you know, kids. Um, but people usually think of it as kids, as little babies, who the film is supposed to babysit, or adults who were there dragging their kids. And they don't think about the huge in-between that is adolescence to young adults who often aren't serviced in any way at all. And that's dramatically an area that felt so rich and so pertinent to this story that, that we're trying to tell. This idea, also understand, Miles came into the world of being a superhero in, in the first film as part of a team. So this idea of a kid who, unlike Peter Parker, has a strong family experiencing withering loneliness after becoming Spider-Man felt very distinct. It felt very, very fresh. Um, and, and it was something that we were just like dying to explore, especially since his parents, he's, he's like the American dream. He's the, he's the all-American kid, as Malcolm X once described Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he's an all-American boy. You know, his mom is a nurse. His dad is a cop. He's a, he's a straight-A student at an elite school. Like, this, this is the dream come true. So when you're a parent, a minority parent of a kid like that, and they go through the same growing changes as any other kid, it can be difficult to process. So we wanted to give the parents equal weight. I mean, it's, it should be very noticeable how expanded and important both Rio and Jeff are in this film. And G George Stacy wasn't in the first film. He is a, a real important character in this. And that's why we cast Shea Wiggum, who I thought was just one of the most phenomenal dramatic actors. This was Shea Wiggum's first voiceover role. So... That was a really interesting process for him to kind of come in and say, well, how does this work? And <laughs> he had lots and lots of questions. And it was a wonderful experience to kind of introduce him to this. But ultimately, whether people love or don't love our ending, our cliffhanger ending, we wanted to make sure that we had a complete arc and demonstrated growth for both Miles and Gwen in this film. And we believe, I believe that we accomplished that. And that growth is so much tied to how they view themselves um, and their relationship to their their parents. Absolutely. Um, the moment in uh, the Stacy apartment when all the color drops out and it's white. Uh, yeah, I it's, know. It's both such like wonderful. It, it, it builds. 
there's been such wonderful formal expression. And so for the moment of catharsis to be that moment of restraint is so cool. And the voice actors absolutely kill it. Um, it's like everything is working. It's insane. And, and, and unusually, we actually put Shay and Haley together for that. Oh, cool. Very cool. We actually did put them together. At first, we did it separately. And then to get even more emotion out of the scene, we put um, we put Shay and Haley, Shay Wiggum and um, Haley Steinfeld together in a room to re-record it. That's awesome. Thank you for such amazing, detailed, thoughtful answers. Um, the last bullet point I have on my list says darkest timeline. And so I'm, I, I would love to ask you about the end of the film and building to like that sort of catharsis and crescendo for, for Gwen and Miles, um, kind of this darker version of the rise up sequence from the first film but then leaving it there and the challenge of that and sort of how how you found the right balance for the look of that scene and the structure of that sequence well structurally i mean it was a lot of trial and error um it, you know we we didn't i'll be perfectly honest we did we did a an audience test screening where there was a different ending. It was, it was a different, it was still a cliffhanger, but there was a different version of it that did not go over very well. And, and we were kind of going like, oh boy, like this is a, a bit of a, a problem. And part of it was because they weren't, it, we thought it was about the scene itself, but it actually turns out that it was because of some things before the scene. It wasn't, it was that they weren't getting the completion of Miles's growth arc. So, to fix that ending, the big thing we did was change the scene where Miles tells Rio that he's Spider-Man in the wrong dimension. That was rewritten at the very last minute because um, it was actually a different speech. Um, and there were certain things in the other speech that while it was emotional, it wasn't clear that his, his growth, it wasn't clear that he was now, he knows who he is. He isn't afraid of anyone. He values his family, the family that he was taking for granted over this team that he wanted to be a part of. Those are all things you get out of that scene now, but you didn't. And that was negatively impacting that, that ending. So by changing that scene structurally, it helped the ending. There were some other little things that, that we added on um, as well, but ending with Miles being confronted with Miles G was always meant to be the, the ending of this film um, because we also wanted to make sure that, okay, Miles is running away from 2099 and all the spider people. He's trying to get back to his, his family. We wanted to make sure we introduced something that was an unexpected new problem to be solved in the next film, as opposed to simply a continuation of the problem he was trying to solve throughout this one, which was, I need to get home, right? So that was one of the, that was a really, really big thing. And it was this idea of like Miles being the conscientious hero that he is. And he is a hero. We know, we assume that Miles would not be comfortable with the situation in Earth 42, considering he would blame himself for that situation. And I think that especially when there is another him whose life has turned out very, very differently because of the spider that bit Miles. So we thought that that was an exciting, it excited, look, you know what? It excited the shit out of me. And that's really, you know, what's important is that it excites the filmmakers. 
And it's okay for it to be a little bit divisive. Now everyone's using, you know, it, before before the film came out, um, it was funny because if you even brought up The Empire Strikes Back, people would go like, how dare you? But I think The Empire Strikes Back, people took that as just like being dark. But The Empire Strikes Back was a, was a formative film because growing up in Brooklyn, we didn't go into the city that much. Manhattan was like a once or twice a year kind of thing for me. I was like really on my block. But the, one of the first memories I have of going into Manhattan, I think it was eight or nine, was to see The Empire Strikes Back in theaters. Um, I didn't see the first Star Wars in theaters because I was like three or two or whatever. So yeah, it was 76, so I was three years old. So The Empire was the first one that I saw. And I remember going in there and after being a fan of Star Wars, watching it on Betamax, I go in to see The Empire Strikes Back. And in the first 20 minutes, Luke gets mauled by a bear Han Solo, like, guts this creature, pulls its guts out, and puts Luke in its carcass to keep him warm. And by the end, Luke has had his arm cut off. Darth Vader is his father. Han's frozen in carbonite. And I'm terrified and excited. And then it's like, it ends on, we're going to get Han. And people, I've, people screamed <laughs> in the theater. They screamed. I was manic. And I mean manic in the best way. Because <laughs> it blew my fucking mind at the time and that john williams credits music too yeah is the banger of the original trilogy i must say it is so great it was so great it didn't have x-wing fighters it had snow speed i mean it blew my mind and i don't know man like we want we wanted to try to blow people's minds with this and lord lord for lord chris miller joaquin justin me our goal was like we want to tell an emotional exciting story and blow people's fucking wigs off at the end and what's wrong with trying to do that maybe it's gonna make you angry and scream but that's okay why does everything have to be tied up with a bow and we have the incredible luxury of knowing that there's a third film uh, don't forget, like, Empire and Jedi were three years apart. And I was happy to wait. So, like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's okay. I think it's it's okay if you're mad. If, you, if you're mad and you see me on the street, say, like, hey, asshole, thanks for the ending. And I'll be like, you're welcome. <laughs> and that's cool. It's totally cool. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a pain in that ending, but it's also delicious because we, we sort of see um, or sense... Um, everything that could come of this is some of the stuff you've talked about with, um, yeah, I think Miles has a couple universes to save. He's going to be a busy guy. Yeah. And, and as, as informed as everyone is, everyone, everyone on the internet has a firm grasp of story math these days. So it's not very easy to surprise them, is it? And I would say, I think we surprise people. <laughs> so, and I think people can sometimes be angry because they're not used to being surprised anymore. Yeah. I think, well, it's, it's a question of what are you what do you come to stories for? And there is, I think, in Miguel O'Hara, this sort of desperation to hold on to something that is incomplete and painful, but expected and known. That reminds me of some comic book movies. And that's all I will say about that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no comment. No comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, man. Well, Kemp, thank you so much for the generosity of your time for today for these wonderful answers and for this wonderful vibrant alive film i didn't think 
Into the Spider-Verse was going to be topped as my favorite Spider-Man movie, but it kind of has. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I mean, they're, they're just different. One isn't better. I think they're just two Absolutely. very different, very singular stories. And that's like a comic book. Isn't that kind of what we want? 